Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In this episode, the Brothers in Crime explore the bizarre events surrounding the death of Dorothy Donovan, a beloved grandmother who was murdered in her farmhouse. The case involves cocaine, kindness, and a story so crazy it couldn't be true. Except it is. And he's on my property now. Is anybody out there at your house? My mother's next door to my trailer, and she lives alone. I'd like to get somebody out there to see the can't, because I don't want to break into my mother's. We just heard the 911 call. It was Charles Holden's. He got home after midnight, and he saw some dude creeping around his trailer. So mm-hmm. his trailer is on a 163-acre farm. It's right next to his mother's house, uh, an old farmhouse. What state are we in? We are in Delaware. Okay. Uh, it was 1991, Delaware. Charles Holden was coming home from work. It's after midnight. He pulls up to his trailer. We're in rural part of Delaware here. Mom lives on a 163-acre farm. He has a trailer there next to her house. He pulls up, and he sees this sketchy dude in front of the trailer looking in the window. So it's 91. Not everybody has cell phones. Only the ultra rich and the super on the cutting edge of tech have those big old Motorola brick phones or whatever. There's very few of them. In addition to farming, Charles also works at the DuPont factory. Farming's not going all that great. He has some debt from that. So, you know, he's got a job and he's getting home. He calls 911. He wants the police because a sketchy dude's checking out his house and he's also worried about his mom next door. The police determine it's a low priority call. And within a couple hours, about three in the morning, a police officer comes out and takes Charles in. They go through the trailer, find there's nobody in there. The windows haven't been broken. Doors are solid. Charles says, hey, my mom lives next door. She's older. She's 70 years old. So he wants to go check her house too. While he's got the guy with the gun there with him. So it next door. They go in the house. They don't see anything amiss at first. And then Charles thought it was odd that the house was dark and that as he was calling out for his mom when they went in the house, she wasn't answering because it was her habit to stay up until he got home from work at night. She might have been in bed, but she didn't go to sleep until after she knew Charles was home. So he makes his way up to her room where he finds her, this 70-year-old grandmother, bloody with a pillow over her face and spread eagle on her bed. Just a horrible, horrible scene. You said he had called the police a couple couple hours before they actually showed up, right? Yeah. He called the police at 119 and it was around 3 a.m. before they got out there. Um, so our guy gets off work and there's some weird dude. He reports to 911 and he's literally waiting a couple hours for them to show up. Do we know, was he in his trailer waiting or did he wait outside? When he originally got home and he saw this sketchy dude out around his trailer, he turned around and went back to a payphone to call 911 for the police. So he never actually went in his trailer. He didn't go in his trailer. He didn't go in his mom's house. He went and called for the police and it's unclear where he was between the time he called and when the police showed up what he was doing. I don't know if he was waiting in the driveway or if he's sitting at the payphone. Apparently it's a pretty rural area so maybe it was a situation where where he was at the police would have to go past him to get to his house and maybe he just waited there. I got you. So he's just Jay chilling waiting hoping for the cops to come in and check this out and then they finally show up and, and then he find his mom like that. Yeah there's been some questions. Critics say well why in the world didn't he just go check on his mom or why he run this guy over with his truck. So here's the thing. This guy that he saw prowling around his house, this wasn't the first time that he'd ever seen this guy. He recognized this guy from about 20 minutes earlier. When Charles got off work at the DuPont factory, he stopped at the Hardee's to grab himself a burger and a coffee. I love Hardee's. Right. Mushroom and Swiss. Got himself a burger and a coffee. And there's this dude wandering around the park. 
parking lot asking people for a ride. He asked Charles for a ride. He said that his sister was having a baby or something, some cockamamie story, depending on which article you read. Charles said, look, I'm not going as far as you need. I can't help you. I'm only going up the road a little bit. The dude persists and Charles says, all right, but I can take you a little ways up the road. It'll get you a little closer. So he hops in the truck. They head up the road a little bit and Charles doesn't really want to look at this guy right next to his house. So about a half a mile from his trailer and his mother's house, it sounds like an intersection in the road. And rather than make the, the right to go toward his trailer, he tells the guy, okay, look, this is where your ride ends. There's a payphone up there and best of luck. And the guy like flips out. He starts to attack Charles. He finds a screwdriver on the floorboard of the truck and starts to come after him with that. Charles bolts out of the truck, but not before he grabs the keys out of the ignition. Pretty incredible. My man Charles, he's pretty smart, right? He is. Charles goes running from the truck and the reports are mixed on this, but he ran somewhere either to get help or to call police, whether it was a garage or a convenience store and whether he was going to call the police or banging on doors to get help. Whatever way, he leaves the bad guy in the truck and he goes running to try and get some help. The bad guy's chasing after him. Charles doesn't find help wherever he's going. The guy says, give me your keys and give me your money or I'm going to kill you. So Charles manages to talk him down a little bit and say, okay, look, I'll take you wherever you want to go, but let's just go. They head back for the truck. Charles had no intention of giving this cat a ride anywhere. Charles puts it in overdrive, jumps in the truck, takes off before the bad guy can get into the truck. And the bad guy actually tries to run after him on foot and Charles watches him in the rearview mirror and sees that he's still out there. Now Charles doesn't want to go home because he's like, I'm a half a mile from my house, my mom's house. If I go there, this guy is just going to follow me there. So he decides to go a different direction, cruise around town for 20 minutes or whatever. Imagine he's probably a little shook up too, right? Some dude just tried to like take your truck and... Yeah, it's like midnight. He's already worked a shift in a factory. He's trying to eat his burger and go home. He doesn't really want to deal with this person, but he's like, okay, be a nice guy. Ride with me as far as I'm going. 1991, when people still would like pick up a hitchhiker, give somebody a ride and maybe not worry so much about getting murdered. Yeah, exactly. So he drives around for a little bit and then figures, all right, it's safe to go back home. And that's when he pulls in to his driveway and sees this guy poking around his trailer and is like, holy shit, that's the guy. It's the guy that he had just given the ride to, the guy that had attacked him. So at that point, he's like, yeah, it's really time to call the police. But like I say, there's some people that are like, why didn't he just run this guy over? Now we know today in Snowflake Society, I'm sure Charles would go to prison for the rest of his life if he ran that man over in his front yard. What does this all have to do with his mother being dead in the farmhouse next door? Let's go back to where in the house and Charles finds his mother and he brings the police officer up there and they discover that she is definitely deceased. She has multiple stab wounds. She has a pillow over her face. She is dead there on the scene. The police immediately suspect Charles. He's the son. He lives right next door. Dorothy's twice widowed and lives alone. So there's no one else that lives in the house. There was no one in the house. Charles is reporting this crime. And then when they begin to question him, his story sounds outrageous. Sounds crazy. It's yeah. the dumbest alibi that you could ever give. The mystery man that, yeah. And that's what the police tell him is that there's no way we don't believe you. That can't be happening. You killed your mom. Right. And he doesn't take kindly to that. You mentioned that she was spread eagle. Was there any evidence that she had been sexually assaulted? None at all. Investigators considered the pillow being over her face must mean that it was someone close to her. And the stab wounds being in her torso. Personal, her, right? Upper torso and injuries to her face and head. This must have been a, a very personal attack. The pillow must have been placed over her face because someone close and the killer who didn't want to see what he had done. 
And then the staging of the body, they felt like that was staging to throw the police off. That's what the investigators thought. Charles claims he knows nothing about any of this. He explains, I picked up this hitchhiker. I took him part of the way. He tried to assault me. He did assault me, made him get out. And then 20 minutes later, he's poking around my trailer. And now we come and my mother next door is dead. It had to be him. This is who it had to be. And of course, the police tell him that's insanity. And this is back, you know, like now we'd say, oh, just go review the video, right? But probably didn't have good video or whatever if they had any surveillance in the first place. It definitely wasn't like today where every house has multiple. We got rings and... Dorothy ain't had no ring camera. No, not in 1991. That was future tech at that time. There was no surveillance at the houses. It was way before all that. But what they did have at the Hardys was multiple witnesses who said, yeah, there was this guy and the same guy who later turned out to be Gilbert Cannon. There was this guy who was bugging everybody in the parking lot for a ride. They had witnesses say, yeah, we saw this guy get in his truck and leave. So, so that part pretty well corroborated that he went with him. There was even a witness that saw Charles take off from that intersection with Gilbert in foot pursuit of the truck. So even that bizarre part of the story was corroborated. Once Charles takes off from that intersection with Gilbert Cannon in pursuit via foot, there's no witnesses after that. So the police are convinced that Charles has done this. They're not interested in this story about this, uh, what they call the mystery man. And even Charles's family is not impressed with Charles's story. It just seems too crazy to be true. It's like Gibbs says in NCIS, right? No such thing as a coincidence. That's a general rule in law enforcement. Either we don't believe in coincidences or they don't exist. They're not buying it. The FBI profiler said the person you're looking for is definitely going to be close to the victim, known to the victim, somebody she trusted because there's no way she would have slept through the window being broken. Every floorboard in this house creaks. So it was someone she knew was in her house, was comfortable with them in her house. They did find in the way of physical evidence, a glass pain broken out of a door. One of the things that that was really curious to the police is that Dorothy didn't wake up when this glass pane was broken. When he went in, supposedly that's how he gained access. And they found nothing on the body. Again, this was 1991, so this was like infancy of DNA. They found a, a bloody palm print on the stairs and blood on a light switch downstairs. They captured the print and they took a sample of blood off the light switch. The palm print did not match Charles. It was not Charles. So this is something that supported his story. Then the next thought, though, is, well, if this mystery man actually did commit this crime, perhaps Charles was behind it. Maybe it was a murder for hire. They discovered that Dorothy had just gotten a life insurance policy Uh-oh. just before that and had named Charles as the beneficiary. Oh, no. What about the sisters? It was just Charles, huh? He was the one named. It's very hard to find information about the family dynamics other than the fact that they became estranged after this. But so he's named. He's the guy that gets the money when she dies. Yeah. So then the cops are like, oh, man, yeah, like clearly this has to be the guy. Right. He has a motive. He's having some financial problems right now because farming is not lucrative and he has some debt. He's working at a factory. Like who wants to, I mean, right. that's hard work. Right. But so the daughters did not live on the farm with them, but Charles lived on the farm with his mom. So maybe that was just the strongest relationship. We don't know. Sure. People, people do all kinds of reasons, but now the cops are like, all right, we've got this story that's unbelievable and we have motive for him to commit this crime. So they're probably just salivating, but they have this palm print. I mean, a murder for hire, I guess that's sort of how they make it fit in in the right. I think that was the easy path to say, well, we know this is the guy. Okay, but you have a palm print in the victim's blood. So that person was there during the act. Oh, okay. Well, he's behind it. This thing lingered for 15 years. They had entered the DNA from the light switch into CODIS. When that came about, that wasn't a thing in 1991. They get a hit. 
15 years later. It's this guy that lives in Maryland named Gilbert Cannon. He's certainly no stranger to law enforcement. They find out his palm print is a match. Oh, wow. In her blood, his DNA, it's his blood on the light switch. It's his palm print in her blood. So they go question him about this. What are you doing hanging out with 70-year-old Grandma Dorothy here in Delaware in 1991? So he confesses, given the evidence there, and explains that he was high on crack cocaine and really looking for more. So they asked him about Charles Holden. Do you know this guy? Have you seen this guy? Whatever. Because they still probably think maybe it's this murder for hire thing, right? Oh, yeah. They're convinced that now that they found the guy, he's going to tell them that Charles paid him to. Yeah. So for them, they're like, oh, now we can finally pin this on Charles. Right. But they ask Cannon about Charles and he's like, I've never seen that guy. I don't know who you're talking about. Then they ask him. He says, no, he didn't hire me to do anything. He denies that Charles Holden had any involvement in it. Then they started to tell him Charles's story. And he says, yeah, you know, a guy gave me a ride, but that was the first time I ever met him was that night he gave me a ride. And no, I didn't know that was his house or his mother's house. He says, the reason I went in that house is it was the only one that I saw that didn't have lights on. It was the only dark house. I thought it was abandoned. And then Grandma pops up. She's awake and alive in there. She's seen me. I can't, you know, I knew I was going to go to prison. He claims he doesn't remember any of the details. Maybe that's just him trying to distance himself from the awful things he did. Or like he's high and it's 15 years later. And a lot of these situations where the person that was high when they committed a crime, they don't remember any part of it. He remembers up until the point that she was screaming and he put the pillow over her face to make her quiet. Oh, wow. He says he doesn't recall any of the stabbing or striking or the positioning or anything like that. Where does it go from there? The cops just take him away to prison? Does he go to trial? Does he plead? Where does that go? He ended up pleading guilty and is serving a life sentence. Wow. I assume the state would have handled this. So he was looking at possibly a death sentence out of this, huh? Yeah, the deputy attorney was, was seeking the death penalty penalty in the case, Cannon's attorney would try and throw Charles under the bus again to spare his client. He would try to bring in doubt that maybe Cannon didn't act alone and pointed to the police's original theory about Charles Holden and the possibility that he was involved. That was the argument against the death penalty. And then Cannon ultimately pleaded guilty to first degree murder in an arrangement that he would serve life in prison without the possibility of parole. Is he still alive? Do you know? Is he still serving time? Because, I mean, this was back, what, 2004, 5, 6, somewhere in there? Yeah, in 2006, he was 42. Oh, okay. So he would be in his late 50s now. Since all this happened, there's not much information out there about whether there was ever a reconciliation. One of Charles's sisters, Dorothy's daughters, has since passed away. And in that uh, obituary, it includes her sister as well as uh, her brother Charles and his wife. So he apparently uh, has married since then. Nieces and nephews, although it doesn't say whether those are children of Charles or Charles's other sister that survives. What a dark cloud to have. Just it's bad enough thinking about this from Charles' perspective for just a second. I mean, here you are, and I imagine rightfully or wrongfully, you know, if the sisters were saying maybe you didn't scheme this, you didn't plan to kill Ma, but you brought this guy who did it close to the house. Just having that thrown out there, I mean, that had to be a weight on his shoulders. And then to have the police suspect, and probably people in the town suspect that he killed your own mom for all that time. And then the defense lawyer for Cannon kind of throws some of that out there, probably in mitigation to help his own client out. Yeah, that's a lot to just, you know, I hope at this point he's been able to kind of find a way to get past some of that stuff. And then to just deal with, you know, how, how do you grieve your mom's death when you're busy wrapped up in 
and all this other stuff. Life was not great for him going into it. He already had some issues and then this happens and maybe that's why there's so little out there. Maybe the family's been able to maintain some privacy after this and good for them. So if you're Charles Holden and you're really innocent of this and you've been accused of it to the point where you are estranged from your family, he was estranged from his sisters at this point. And even once they found out that Gilbert Cannon was involved, they still held a lot of heartache toward Charles because they were like, you never should have brought that guy that close to our mother in the first place. Okay, so fine. You didn't do this. You didn't set it up. You didn't pay him to do it, but you brought that danger that close to mom. When stuff like that happens, you always look for something or somebody to blame. That's like human nature, right? And it's a horrible situation. The one daughter said that she could have accepted it if her mom had been in a car crash, if her mom had died of something else, but to have someone decide to take her life, that was really tough for her. Sure. And yeah, I just imagine, you know, let's assume, as we're supposed to do that here in America, that Charles is innocent. He goes to work and has this experience this night, this horrible experience that no one should live through. And then for 15 years, there's a cloud of suspicion around him. Then you have a guy come forward, the guy. Yes, I'm the mystery man. Yeah, I did it. No, I didn't know who that dude was. And now for his lawyer to come back and say, well, maybe he really was behind him. I mean, that's just got to be like salt in the wound. When you got to think the police, I imagine, probably still, if that's your theory for that long, you're probably going to be a little bit tied to that even, you know, unless there's just irrefutable evidence to contradict it, you're going to still believe that's what happened. They flat out ask Cannon and he says, no, why wouldn't Cannon throw this guy under the bus and at least try and split the consequences? Yeah, get a deal. I mean, I'm sure they said, you know, oh, you tell us the rest and, you know, maybe there's a deal for you. He could have said, yeah, well, I was there, but Charles Holden's the one that did it, but he didn't know Charles Holden's name. He had no idea who that guy was, which really supports Holden's story. Charles Holden doesn't come across as, I don't want to insult his intelligence. He may be a very smart fellow. If he is, definitely not the most articulate, not an expressive communicator. So I think the lack of ability to clearly communicate did not help him at all. Maybe they were kind of holding it against him. Like they looked at, you think the police looked at that almost like, well, if you were really innocent, you would do this and this and this. You know, we see that a lot. People say, well, if that person was innocent, then they would act this kind of way or they would say these things. And so maybe for him, if he had some of that kind of stuff going on, it was a little harder for him. And then they counted it against him. Right. I think they also saw him, you know, I don't, I can't speak for the police, but I don't know. Maybe they saw him as weak and as though they could push him. Like, listen to this clip from the interrogation. Only an idiot would believe that story. Not me, an experienced policeman, an idiot wouldn't believe that story. They pushed hard on him, and to me, he just came across as genuine because it was just, it was not a good story. Yeah, if you're going to make something up, there's a lot better than, you know, I picked up a guy at Hardy's and then dropped him off a half mile from my place and then saw him lurking around my trailer. It seemed like the story was too complicated for something that you would expect Charles Holden to have come up with. But on the other hand, it was also too simple to be true. So you, you would think that if he was this cunning person that's plotted this murder for hire... He'd be in some, he'd be in Costa Rica or in Florida or something when it happens, right? Not like, you know, a half mile from the house. Yeah, or at least why on earth would he set things up in a way that is going to have him sitting near the home with no alibi for, for like two, two hours. hours? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Waiting for the police. If he's, if he's smart enough to come up with this crazy story, why not avoid that crazy story altogether? At least shorten the window. He could have done this and went immediately back to Hardy's and hope people think he stayed there the whole time. Well, yeah. Yeah, found somebody to be the witness that says, oh, yeah, he was here. He was eating a burger.
Waiting for the cops. And where in the world do you come up with a situation where you got witnesses saying, yeah, we saw that guy asking for rides, and yeah, we saw him get into his truck, and then another witness that sees one of the other weird parts of the story, sees him chasing him at the intersection. Yeah, he's got some good witnesses that uh, I imagine that probably put a rock in the police officer's shoes investigating the case in terms of trying to, you know, it's not like it's all just one-sided. It certainly seems too coincidental to be, but then there's like the, the print that doesn't match. There's some witness testimony, and I guess that's why they just left the case open for 15 years, right? They, did they ever charge Charles with anything? They did not charge Charles with anything. They briefly had another suspect, both Charles and witnesses at the Hardee's in a photo ID had identified another person mm. as the man that was lingering in the Hardee's parking lot. And Charles thought this was the man that he had given a ride to and that he had seen in his yard trying to get in his trailer. They all, Charles and the witnesses, ID'd this other guy that was not Gilbert Cannon. Wow. And this is just a testament to how inaccurate eyewitness testimony is. He wasn't the guy. And they know he wasn't the guy because the palm print did not match and he had a different blood type. So the police were able to rule this other guy that was picked out of this lineup. They ruled him out. Oh, yeah. Thank goodness. Otherwise, he'd have been in jail for life when he clearly was not the guy, just based on the fact that he looked like the guy and eyewitnesses are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Eyewitness testimony is bad. Was it a cross-racial identification? Charles is white and Gilbert Cannon is black. Obviously, the person that Charles and the other witnesses identified as the hitchhiker, this other gentleman, he was black as well. But I don't know about the witnesses at the Hardys. I mean, there's a ton of research. Cross-racial identifications are notoriously unreliable. Like eyewitness, like you said, eyewitness identifications alone are, are not great. And then once you switch, and it doesn't matter whether it's a white person identifying a black person or an Asian person or an Asian person identifying a white person or a black person, no matter what, there's no, uh, it's not like one is better than the other. It's just they're fundamentally not as good. Sure, yeah, because our, our brains are looking for the biggest difference. They're looking for something that stands out. In the 70s or 80s, there was a gang of bank robbers. And one of the reasons that they were successful is they take an ordinary sort of plain-looking car, a baby blue Chevy Nova or something, something that just was everywhere it existed and it was plain and boring. And they would take some tape, some like two-inch wide tape, and run a stripe down both sides of the car and make it like pink or bright red or something. Something that really stuck out. Something that just really stood out. It was different. That's the part that they were not used to seeing. Everybody said, I saw that blue car with the pink stripe. That's what all the witnesses reported. Not much details about the getaway car, but they remembered a big bright pink stripe on it or a big bright red stripe on it. These guys would rob the bank. They'd come out, they'd jump in the car, and as soon as they got just out of the hot zone, hop out, rip that stripe off, and now they're clean. Nobody was looking for their car because it didn't have this big bright stripe on it. Well, that's just one thing that stood out. And people are just bad at memory in general. We think we're a lot better than we really are. Yeah. Yeah. We have a false sense of what we can and can't remember. And it's been proven that the more certain you are about what you remember, the likelihood is you're wrong. So, yeah. So when you say, I remember it like it was yesterday and you can feel that memory, it means nothing. Real good chance you're not remembering it accurately. Memory isn't recall, it's reconstruction always. It's your brain is reconstructing and it's usually reconstructing from the last time you told the story or had the memory. So every time you get to replay it, sort of like a VHS tape, you know, you modify it a little bit unintentionally. Yeah, I, you know, I just pulled something up because this makes me think of like the Innocence Project and the work they do. And they have some statistics on their website. And this is really fascinating stuff. It goes in line with what you're saying. 
when you look at the exonerations that they have based on DNA, so this isn't technicalities, this isn't people that they got off on some mistake that happened in a trial. This is legitimate somebody else committed the crime that this person spent time in prison for. From 1989 to 2020, there are, as of 2020, there were 375 DNA exonerations. And out of those, 69% involved eyewitness misidentification. I mean, that's how bad it is. How many was that? 69% of 375 involved eyewitness misidentification. So you've got nearly 200 people in prison based on bad memory. Yeah, it's really bad. And there's a breakdown of statistics on their website out of those misidentification cases. And it's really, really fascinating stuff. Out of the cases that involved eyewitness misidentification, 84% of the misidentification cases involved misidentification by a surviving victim, which oftentimes we say, okay, if you were assaulted, if you were the person who was attacked, who's going to remember it better than you? But the reality is you're going to remember it worse than anybody. That's where I think we've got some learning to do as a populace. Absolutely. And again, the more convinced you are that you know it and that you're right, chances are you're probably wrong. You know, we've talked a lot about the murder and the end of Dorothy's life and Gilbert Cannon, but before this lady was murdered, she was a grandma that her daughters described as their best friend. She called every morning and every evening, talked to him on the phone. She liked doing things that grandmas do. You know, she went to church. She liked baking. She liked watching the kids. You know, she babysat the grandkids. She was, she was grandma. Yeah, I thought this was really a, a neat fact that you said that she would wait up for Charles to get home from his factory job. Like she wanted to make sure he was, you know, he made it home. He was safe and all that stuff before she would go to bed. I thought that was really sweet. That's a, that's a mom thing to do. Absolutely. It's the aunt, grandma, motherly kind of thing. The worry was on her mind that, you know, she couldn't settle in until she knew he was home and settled in. And nobody knows the specifics of this, but a couple of days before this went down, Dorothy had confided in her one daughter that she had a feeling that, that something bad was going to happen. She just didn't feel right. Wow. Of course, everybody, probably even including Dorothy, sort of passed that off. You know, there were no details of did she have some premonition or something. She just had a gut feeling that something was off and something was going to go bad. That's crazy. The unfortunate end to Dorothy. And now on the Brothers in Crime podcast. They didn't do the crime, but they did the time. Innocent brothers. Two brothers who, according to the Chicago Sun-Times, spent decades in prison for a murder that they have been found innocent of, even though they spent, I think, over 25 years each in prison, and they're waiting for a ruling on their innocence. Reginald Henderson and Sean Tyler were convicted of a 1994 murder, and their case, man, it is... It is heavy. This is from an era where the Chicago police were sort of, or at least now, and to people who had to deal with them back then, were known for some not-so-great things. The words used in this article, torture, is used regularly when you read some of the accusations and some of the things that have been levied against the detectives and the police officers at the time. It is, whew, it is hard to read. But these dudes, if we know they're innocent, why aren't they, like, declared innocent? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, right? So that's what their lawyers and what they're saying. In March of 2023, they were disappointed because they thought they were going to maybe get somewhere with their case for their certificate of innocence. But a judge uh, put that out a few more months. They're going to have to wait. And they're trying to get these certificates of innocence, which would formally remove their arrests from their records, their charges. Uh, It would also entitle them to some relief, some benefits that they're not entitled to until they receive that certificate under state law. So they could get things like counseling and even a monetary um, you know, there really isn't a good word for it because you spent a couple decades in prison. There's no real word for 
getting compensated or rewarded for that. You're certainly not. It's just a, it's a really horrible way to try to make some kind of amends for just a really tragic injustice. There's um, nothing that's going to make up for, what is it? Over 25 years, each of them served. Like they served their whole, they served all their time. Mm -hmm. It's not that they got let out because they were determined to be innocent. Like they served their whole time, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Once they've done their time for the crimes they didn't commit and they're out and now, oh, okay, well, we know they're innocent, but they're still convicted murderers. That's right. They went before a judge in 2021. And prosecutors had agreed to vacate their convictions and dropped charges after they had been paroled. But the state's attorney still continues to oppose granting them certificates of innocence. It's just they're caught in this really bizarre in the middle place that I think most people don't even know exists. And, you know, again, you come back to what they've been through. At the time that this went down, back in 1994, when they were arrested, Henderson was 18, Tyler was 17. And they were... I'm looking at their pictures here. These are two old dudes. Well, now, yeah. Yeah, so they've spent their... They've given their whole youthful lives. And at the time, Henderson claims that he was punched repeatedly and left handcuffed in an interrogation room without any food, without the ability to use the bathroom, and that he signed a confession only after he had spent more than 48 hours in custody. And then his brother was arrested the next day and said that he had also been beaten before he confessed. So just horrifying, just awful. And this isn't an isolated incident, kind of like you alluded to, certainly not in L.A., not in Chicago, but even there, they looked at some of the detectives and the officers that were working, and the, the guy who was on this case, the way the article reports it, they say that at the brother's trial, detectives denied abusing them or other suspects, but in the decades that followed, allegations of torture by police who worked under the commissioner and the officers at that time have increasingly been taken as fact by judges in dozens of cases. And I think this is really telling too, right? The state's Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission, yeah, you heard that right. Oh, wow. Torture Inquiry and Relief Commission in 2020 ruled that Tyler's claims of abuse were worthy of review by a judge. And then uh, the commission dismissed a similar request from Henderson in 2021 because his conviction had been reversed by then. So it's just, just horrific. This is really horrific stuff. And it's a shame that these guys, they're in this limbo where, for whatever reason, the state's attorney is fighting against and not allowing them to proceed with certificates of innocence when it seems like all the indicia of a wrongful conviction are present. Damn, that's some bullshit. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. All right, that's a wrap. Cut it off. Oh, the, oh, the green button. Dumbass.